0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragon. This is episode 201 on January 4th, 2021. And yes, that means we just had our huge 200th episode. If you missed that, you you kind of need to go back and listen to it. That was that was a really big one. Huge, huge milestone for the podcast, but also just a great show. We had Bruce Schneier on, uh, who's a, literally world-renowned, and also literally wrote the book on cryptography back in the day. Uh, at least one of the seminal works on it. So uh, anyway, it was a great show. He's a great guy. He's a lot of fun to talk to. Uh, and then we went through some really cool ideas for New Year's resolutions uh, for 2021. It's definitely going to be a better year than last year. can't get a whole lot worse. But seriously, though, there's we had some really great ideas, including some from a lot of top industry experts. So if you anyway, if you missed the previous episode, please go back and check it out. It's well worth listening to. The other reason, of course, is, and this is still ongoing, is that I announced a huge, huge giveaway, uh, like over $1,800 worth of stuff, lots of really great stuff, huge, huge set of gifts, uh, 10 total winners. I'll talk more about that uh, after we get through some news. We have a lot of news to catch up on, so uh, stay tuned to the end of the show for that. So anyway, uh, it's been a while because of the, the way the uh, podcasts have shaken out. We've got some news to cover, and there's been some really big ones. Of course, the huge one is the uh, solar winds hack. That is... Easily the biggest security story in years, uh, and it just happened a couple of weeks ago. And I'm I'm fine to come back to this later because honestly, we're, we're still figuring out exactly what happened. But we've got enough info now that I definitely want to cover that. And um, I'm going to actually read an article from Bruce Schneier on that, who did a great kind of wrap up of not only what happened, but you know what the implications are and what we really should be focused on. So first up, we're going to talk about Facebook, and um, they came out with this really big full-page ad in multiple papers talking about how Apple's privacy protections are just crushing small businesses and their ability to reach their uh, intended targeted audiences and why that is just so laughable. But it's also easy to see why Facebook is getting so defensive lately because they are the focus of not one but two huge lawsuits that were just recently filed, uh, one by the Federal Trade Commission here in the U.S. and one by almost all of the states of the United States separately. And those two cases will probably be combined. But anyway, I've got an article to share on that that kind of gets into those details. Then, as promised, I'm going to talk about the butt pajamas ad. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you soon will. Then a really, really poor choice of timing on GoDaddy's part for testing its employees on whether or not they would be tricked by a phishing scam then some welcome news from Microsoft and McAfee and several others about a ransomware task force being formed, a clarification article on how Signal, the gold standard for end-to-end encrypted messaging that I have been recommending for years, uh, there was several breathless articles about how they were hacked, and that is just not the case. So I've actually got the official response from Signal's very own Moxie Marlin Spike to those allegations, and it's, uh, it's well worth a read. And then finally, of course, we'll dig into the SolarWinds hack. So lots of stuff to cover today. Let's get to it. All right, first up, Facebook, as you know, is not one of my favorites. In fact, they're somebody that I pick on mercilessly and somebody I avoided for years. Especially after Cambridge Analytica, I I quit all my accounts. I had a business account, a business account and a personal account. Uh, I have, however, recently gone back to Facebook because I realized that that is still, unfortunately, where everybody is. So, uh, you know, you could still look for Firewalls, Don't Stop Dragons on Facebook and follow me there. There's a lot. um, But anyway, uh, be that as it may, they're still bad. (laughs) So, and hopefully we'll get some competition someday that will be privacy conscious, um, unlike Facebook. Anyway, so Facebook and Apple are at each other again. And Apple, really all they're doing is they are now forcing application makers for iOS uh, to disclose when they are being tracked and uh, giving users the option to say no. And Facebook took this as a personal affront because that is their entire business model. And so here, let me, let me just read uh, the full page ad that Facebook took out against Apple. And it says Apple plans to roll out a forced software update that will change the internet as we know it for the worse. Take your favorite cooking sites or sports blogs. Most are free because they show advertisements. Apple's change will limit their ability to run personalized ads. To make ends meet, many will have to start charging you subscription fees or adding more for in-app purchases, making the internet much more expensive and reducing high-quality free content. Beyond hurting apps and websites, many in the small business community say this change will be devastating for them too at a time when they face enormous challenges. They need to be able to effectively reach the people most interested in their products and services to grow. 44% of all small to medium businesses started or increased their usage of personalized ads on social media during the pandemic, according to a new Deloitte study. Without personalized ads, Facebook data shows the average small business advertiser stands to see a cut of over 60% in their sales for every dollar they spend. Small businesses deserve to be heard. We're standing up to Apple for our small business customers and our communities. Now, obviously, I was reading that with a lot of sarcasm because it deserves it. And I don't want to go through and pick this apart line by line. And the article I'm about to read uh, will address some of these things. Uh, But, you know, language like forced software update. (laughs) Apple has software updates all the time. If you really want to turn those off, you can. But why would you? This is just a regular software update the premise of this entire argument is that personalized ads are better or more valuable than contextual ads. We're going to get into that distinction here in a minute, but that is a highly specious claim. But let me, let me read this article and this is from Wired and I'm going to read several articles today and I've expurgated most of them. So hopefully I Trim them up in such a way that they all still make sense. They're all still cohesive. But if something sounds a little off, that may be why. Um, some of these were kind of long, and I just wanted to kind of trim them down to the most important parts. The title of this article from Wired Magazine is The Smoking Gun in the Facebook Antitrust Case. So read from the article, it says, Imagine a popular social network that takes privacy super seriously. By default, your posts are visible only to people in your real life community. Not only does the company not use tracking cookies, but it promises it never will. It even announces that future changes to the privacy policy will be put up to a vote by users before implementation. It's hard to imagine now, but such a social network once existed. It was called Facebook. The company's journey from privacy-focused startup to mass surveillance platform is at the heart of the long-awaited antitrust case filed today by a group of 46 states, along with the District of Columbia and Guam. The bipartisan coalition led by New York State Attorney General Letitia James alleges that Facebook achieved its dominance through a years-long strategy of anti-competitive tactics, including its acquisitions of budding rivals like Instagram and WhatsApp. As it built up that dominant position, the suit argues, it began offering users a worse and worse privacy experience. The Federal Trade Commission, or the FTC, also filed suit against Facebook today. And I guess this was some time ago. This was a week or two ago. The two cases, which were filed in the District of Columbia Federal District Court and will likely be combined into one, come after more than a year of coordinated investigation into the company. In a statement, Facebook General Counsel Jennifer Newstead referred to the allegations in the legal complaints as, quote-unquote, revisionist history, noting that the FTC approved the Instagram and WhatsApp mergers at the time. That may be, but there isn't any no-backsies rule in antitrust. The FTC of 2020 appears to have a different view of online competition than it did six years ago. The agency is seeking bold remedies, including forcing Facebook to divest itself of Instagram and WhatsApp, which it acquired in 2012 and 2014, respectively. Together, the lawsuits confront a question that has long shadowed the push for antitrust enforcement against tech platforms. How do you prove people are being harmed by a product that's offered for free? Judging by the complaint filed by the states, which is more thorough than the FTCs, the answer will hinge on privacy. At first blush, privacy and antitrust might seem like separate issues, two different chapters in a textbook about big tech. But the decline in Facebook's privacy protections plays a central role in the state's case. Antitrust is a complicated field built on a single premise. When a company doesn't face real competition, it will be free to do bad things. With Facebook, the lack of competition is easy to prove. The company is by far the biggest social network in the U.S., and, thanks to Instagram and WhatsApp, owns two of the other biggest. Facebook itself boasted in 2011 that, quote, Facebook is now 95% of all social media, unquote. Today, Facebook insists that it faces robust competition from everything else that a person could devote their attention to. That is generally not how markets are defined for antitrust purposes, however. The biggest hurdle for antitrust enforcement is proving the bad things part, showing not only that Facebook built up a monopoly, but that its monopoly has been harmful. Since the 1970s, antitrust law has revolved around the so-called consumer welfare standard, under which a monopoly is deemed illegal only if it hurts consumers. In practice, that turns most antitrust cases into arguments over whether a given merger will or won't lead to a price increase. The consumer welfare standard is controversial. The House Antitrust Subcommittee has suggested scrapping it, but for now remains the law of the land. That poses a special challenge for a case against a company like Facebook that doesn't charge users any money. Last year saw a conceptual breakthrough on that front. In a paper titled The Antitrust Case Against Facebook, the legal scholar Dina Srinivasan argued that Facebook's takeover of the social networking market has inflicted a very specific harm on consumers. It has forced them to accept ever worse privacy settings. Facebook, Srinivasan pointed out, began its existence in 2004 by differentiating itself on privacy. Unlike then-dominant MySpace, for example, where profiles were visible to anyone by default, Facebook profiles could only be seen by your friends or people at the same school, verified by a .edu email address. And this is a quote from from an early privacy policy of Facebook. It said, quote, we do not and will not use cookies to collect private information from any user, unquote. As the company grew, Srinivasan argued, Facebook tried to backslide on its privacy commitments, but it faced discipline from a market that it still hadn't cornered. In 2007, it rolled out Beacon, a product that allowed it to track user activity even when they were off the site. Facing fierce backlash, Beacon publicly reported your purchase habits on friends' news feeds. The company discontinued Beacon within the year. Zuckerberg called it a mistake. After rivals like MySpace exited the stage, however, Facebook had less to fear. Today, it's Pixel tracks users all around the internet, just as Beacon did, but without the ill-considered newsfeed posts. According to Srinivasan, this is just one of the many ways in which Facebook rolled back privacy protections once it sensed users couldn't take their business elsewhere. Srinivasan's theory provided an elegant theoretical solution to the consumer harm puzzle, but left open some empirical questions. Did Facebook actually compete for users by offering better privacy protections? And did it really renege on those commitments later on simply because the company's leaders thought they could get away with it? The case filed by the state attorneys general provides new evidence suggesting that the answer to both questions is yes. It cites an internal report from 2008 in which the company identifies strong privacy controls as one of the four pillars of quote-unquote Facebook secret sauce. The report observed, quote, Users will share more information if given more control over who they are sharing with and how they share, unquote. The most revealing insight comes from the summer of 2011 when the company was gearing up to fend off the threat of Google's rival platform, Google+. The complaint quotes an email in which Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg wrote, quote, For the first time, we have real competition and consumers have real choice. We will have to be better to win, unquote. At the time, Facebook had been planning to remove users' ability to untag themselves in photos. One unnamed executive suggested pumping the brakes, and this person said, quote, If ever there was a time to avoid controversy, it would be when the world is comparing our offerings to Google+, Plus, unquote. Better, they suggested, to save such changes, quote, until the direct competitive comparisons begin to die down, unquote. This is close to a smoking gun. Evidence that, as Srinivasan hypothesized, Facebook preserves user privacy when it fears competition and degrades privacy when it doesn't. The states and FTC make a number of other claims about the harm caused by Facebook's monopolistic practices, but they are relatively vague. Sure, Facebook's tendency to gobble up potential competitors or cut them off from its developer tools has probably reduced the level of innovation in the field, but who's to say what social networking would look like in the counterfactual scenario? The privacy theory, by contrast, has the virtue of being concrete. Facebook really did backslide on privacy commitments as it grew more dominant, and that appears not to have been coincidental. That isn't to say the government will therefore glide through litigation. Antitrust law remains stacked in favor of big business, and the federal judiciary is full of judges who are indoctrinated in a narrow consumer welfare model. But the privacy argument will at least get the enforcer's foot in the door. Facebook may not charge users a fee, but that doesn't mean users haven't been paying a price. All right. So I think that was a good article and I think it brought up some really good points. Um, again, ones that we talked about with Cory Doctorow uh, a few months ago when we were talking about the consumer welfare doctrine uh, for monopolies. And it just it just doesn't work anymore, especially in the Internet era when so many of these products and services are, quote unquote, free. If your only measuring stick is whether or not it will increase costs for consumers, then then there's no merger that should get attention and there's no bad practices to curtail. Okay, moving on. Uh, this, this article is really more funny than anything, and I'm, I, I'm honestly curious to know if how many of you actually saw this ad. I, I honestly only saw the ad because I saw the article about the ad, uh, but anyway, it, it's kind of funny and also gives some insights into how tracking on the internet works. So uh, I thought it'd be fun for the show. So this is from Gizmodo. If you're reading this, you might have read the juicy piece that L L Magazine E L L E dropped this weekend, which in this point was a couple weeks ago. Chronicling how a former Bloomberg reporter torched her entire career after falling for the longtime subject of her reporting, professional tool turned convicted securities fraudster Martin Skrelly. And if you know about that article, you probably know about the ad. As Elle's story went viral, it became clear that a ton of readers were all being targeted en masse across the story with a specific ad for, well, different people had different names for it assless pajamas and butt flapped onesies among them. In fact, the actual name is Plain Functional Buttoned Flap Adults Pajamas. And they're sold by an e-commerce retailer named Iv Rose for the low, low price of $26.99. After seeing the onesies ad no less than six times while I read the Screlly Love Screed, my phone started buzzing ceaselessly for quite literally hours on end by other readers who were bombarded with butt. And by the way, this article came with a picture, so... <laughs> As you might imagine, the in, in the picture for this ad, there was a shapely female model wearing these interesting pajamas, and one corner of the butt flap, these are like the old style pajamas that had this little flap on on your butt with snaps on it that you could pull down. I can only presume that in the old days, maybe this was used for when you had to make the trek out to the, to the outhouse, and you didn't want to get fully undressed. I, I don't know. Anyway some sort of nostalgia thing, but one corner of this butt flap was cheekily unsnapped, giving you a little glimpse at this model's derriere. Okay, back to the article. As someone who covers the worst parts of the wacky world of ad targeting, I was getting tagged multiple times per minute by Twitter users trying to get to the bottom of the onesie ad mystery. As it turns out, the ad didn't only swallow the Screlly story, but people's hometown papers, recipe blogs, and just about any internet corner with available real estate ready for the errant advertiser. After I spent more time scrutinizing how exactly this ad turned up everywhere, the more sinister these weird advertisements started to look. In fact, by the end of things, I became convinced that these onesie ads were less about a onesie retailer no one had heard of before, and more about how hopelessly broken the ad tech ecosystem is. One popular theory for the onesie ad's seeming omnipresence was the possibility that third-party brand safety tech that big advertisers often use to keep their brands away from icky content erroneously marked the L article as too risque or unsafe for top-end advertisers. The absence of those brands left a vacuum that lower-tier advertisers, such as a onesie-hawking e-commerce brand, that likely didn't care as much about seeing about being seen next to a smidge of unsane content could fill. Without any big name competition holding it back, Ivy Rose apparently poured a ton of money into getting its onesies seen by as many people as possible on L's story. In other words, the fact that we were seeing wall-to-wall onesies in the L story was indicative of a company pretty much buying out all of the ad spaces on a bargain bin news feature. But that strategy comes with its own questions. Namely, why would you spend tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to advertise on an admittedly cozy-looking set of medium-grade butt-flat pajamas? When you look at the web of ad partners branching out of the IV Rose site, and when you remember that ad networks share data for money, it's not hard to believe that the buckets of cash IV Rose was spending on ad space was actually being spent on the buckets of super-valuable data generated by L readers. It's not impossible to figure out what Ivy Rose plans to do with what is almost assuredly boatloads of data for potential onesie customers. In fact, there's a technical phrase for it. Cookie syncing. The easiest way to describe the process is something of a handshake between a set of partnering ad tech firms that let folks on both sides of the arrangement swap specific sets of user data back and forth. It all starts with the landing page of the onesie in question. As that page loads, it triggers a specific piece of tracking tech from a company called Client Gear, itself a subsidiary of Yamobi, a popular ad tech player based out of China. Client Gear's role here is twofold. First, if you've never visited a website that happened to be one of its partners, it needs to create a unique Client Gear specific ID for your particular device. Then, after tucking a copy of that ID on its network, just in case you return to the onesie page and need to be re identified, that identifier gets broadcast to the miscellaneous ad tech middlemen that Yamobi happens to have some sort of a business relationship with. In this case, it seems there are no fewer than 15 companies in the USA and China that fit this bill. In exchange for the shiny new user ID that they just got from the Onesie page, each of these partners pass back their own identifier in exchange. Sometimes, if it's a third party that happened to cross paths with you sometime in the past, it already has troves of data describing who you are. In any case, once client gear and the partnering player on the other end officially sync their user IDs for you together, the usual plan is to continue swapping any cookie-derived data either one can siphon off of you until you tell them to quit it. In some cases, even if you do tell them to quit it by, say, clearing out your browser's cookie cache, Researchers as far back as 2014 have noted that some of the slimier partners can use their own data stores combined with other basic data to literally respawn the cookie that once existed on the other end. The official lingo for that, in case you're curious, is an ever cookie, which I promise is not as tasty as it sounds. So that's how an ad for an assless onesie could be the linchpin that results in your data being eternally shuffled between more than a dozen shadowy tech players across multiple continents sure it might be hard to believe that an ad for something so infinitely memeable would ever turn around and bite us in the ass at all but at least we have a ready-made outfit for when that happened. all right anyway i, I thought that was funny and uh, and it did kind of cover some privacy stuff so anyway i mentioned that last week so i wanted to cover that one for sure this week moving on uh godaddy is if you've heard of them at all it's probably because you saw them on a super bowl ad at some point or another they tend to be one of those companies that always added advertised in the Super Bowl. And they had some, you know, interesting ads that got a lot of attention years ago. And I think they even at one point started doing like a kind of a racy ad and they would kind of purposely do one that was too racy uh, to be shown in the Super Bowl. And then they'd show the, you know, the kind of the cut version. And then they'd start this whole PR campaign. Well, if you want to see the real one, the one they wouldn't let us show, then go here. And of course, that's just all great advertising, good marketing on their part. Uh, what do they do? So they are a domain name registrar, which means that if you want to get carryparker.com, which I would love to get though, somebody owns it and will not give it up though. they also are not doing anything with it, uh, forcing me to buy kerry-parker.com and not really do much with it either, but at least I own my name anyway, if you, if you wanted to register a domain name, uh, you go to something like GoDaddy. I personally like hover.com and there are several others. But you go to them, you pay them a certain amount of money, and then they register your domain for you and they take care of all the paperwork, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, GoDaddy is one of the companies that advertises, you know, low, low prices. Often that's usually just for the first year and then it goes up and it tends to be more anyway. But anyway, so that's who GoDaddy is. Well, you know, big internet company doing well, as far as I know, uh, did something that was just not, (laughs) just not cool. Uh, And this is another article from Gizmodo. Uh, Let me just read it to you. Then you'll, then you'll understand. GoDaddy decided that December would be a great time to test whether its employees are staying alert when it comes to cybersecurity threats. At a time when its staff is trying to navigate a holiday season hobbled by a pandemic and an ailing economy, the web hosting giant sent a phishing email with an offer that was too good to be true, and now it's very sorry. Arizona-based news outlet The Copper Courier first reported that GoDaddy employees received an email on December 14th with the subject line, GoDaddy holiday party. The email informed workers that the company is looking forward to the annual holiday party and will be issuing, quote, a $650 one-time holiday bonus, unquote. Two links were included in the email, and employees were instructed to choose their location and fill in some details on a form to ensure they'd get their bonus before the holidays. Unfortunately, the whole offer was just a test to see if employees would fall for such a scam if a bad actor tried to redirect them with a malicious link. Two days later, around 500 GoDaddy employees were informed that no bonuses were coming and they'd failed a corporate phishing test. GoDaddy's chief security officer, Demetrius Combs, wrote in the follow-up email that failing employees, quote, will need to retake the security awareness social engineering training, unquote. Many companies perform these kind of tests, and the telltale sign tends to be that the deceptive email is sent from an email address that appears to be from a corporate account. For example, my boss might try to phish me with an email from an address ending in gizmondo.com. And remember, this is from Gizmodo, so that's obviously a fake take on Gizmodo. But GoDaddy runs its own email service, and the fake phishing email was sent from an account with the address happy at Godaddy.com. It's easy to see why so many workers failed the test, and it's easy to understand why GoDaddy would see such a glaring vulnerability in its systems after the company just suffered an embarrassing data breach earlier this year. What's not understandable is the cruelty involved in the setup of this test and the lack of of follow-through on an employee expectation of a routine bonus in a year when the company reported record growth while participating in the larger corporate trend of laying off workers. Cybersecurity is important for a company like GoDaddy, but this same test could have been conducted, training mandates could have been issued to anyone who failed, and bonuses could have still been delivered to everyone. And a quote from uh, a spokesperson from GoDaddy says, quote, GoDaddy takes the security of our platform extremely seriously. We understand some employees were upset by the phishing attempt and felt it was insensitive, for which we have apologized. While the test mimicked real attempts in play today, we need to do better and be more sensitive to our employees. Unquote. The company did not reply when Gizmodo asked if it intends to issue the bonuses. Data breaches can be a gigantic headache for a web hosting company, but if no one wants to work there and no one wants to do business with an organization that treats its employees like dirt at the toughest moment in the toughest year in a generation, there'll be nothing to keep secure. Couldn't agree more. That was just really in poor taste. And honestly, I haven't read more about this to, to know if they did change their minds or follow through, but I hope they did give those guys their $650 bonuses. All right, next up. Ransomware is is a scourge uh, on the internet today. It's Turns out it's not the biggest problem, and we'll talk about it here in this article, at least in terms of, you know, dollar value impact of these of these scams. But it's gotten really bad. And this next article talks about something that is long overdue and is very welcome. So um, this is from ZDNet. A group made up of 19 security firms, tech companies, and nonprofits, headlined by big names such as Microsoft and McAfee, have announced on Monday, and this was last week, plans to form a new coalition to deal with the rising threat of ransomware. Named the Ransomware Task Force, the new group will focus on assessing existing technical solutions that provide protections during a ransomware attack. The Ransomware Task Force, or RTF, will commission expert papers on the topic, engage stakeholders across industries, identify gaps in current solutions, and then work on a common roadmap to have issues addressed among all members. The end result should be a standardized framework for dealing with ransomware attacks across verticals one based on an industry consensus rather than individual advice received from loan contractors. Currently, ransomware is neither the most widespread form of malware nor the type of cyber attack that causes the largest financial losses to companies each year. That title goes to BEC scams, according to the FBI. And BEC, by the way, stands for Business Email Compromise. It's also sometimes called Email Account Compromise. And it's an email scam targeting businesses, uh, and individuals uh, to perform wire transfer payments. I, honestly, I find it hard to believe that that outweighs ransomware, given what's happened in this last year. It just may be that those attacks have somehow higher dollar value. But anyway, they're still really bad. Uh, back to the article says, nevertheless, ransomware is still a major threat and one that has been trending up with ransom demands growing from quarter to quarter. The Ransomware Task Force website, including full membership details and leadership roles, will be launched next month in January 2021, of course, this was written in December, followed by a two- to three-month sprint to get the task force off the ground. So there's more information than that, um, and a lot of companies, most of which you've never heard of. Hopefully, there will be other big-name companies added to that list, however, as this grows. Um, This is super, super critical, very much needed. Companies like Microsoft and Apple in particular, and uh, Google uh, for Android, um, operating system makers, computer manufacturers, really, really, really need to get together, figure this stuff out, and come up with ways to block this. Um, again, the way most ransomware works today is you somehow get infected, and you can get infected many different ways with with this malware, any different way. But once you're infected, this malware creeps through your system or systems looking for juicy information Uh, often will extract that information first uh, and then encrypt all of your data, or at least all the data it thinks is crucial. And then pop up a notice saying, hey, uh, I've just encrypted all your data and there's no way for you to get it back unless I give you the key. And for me to give you the key, you need to give me a lot of money. And because of the newer approach of actually exfiltrating data first, they also have a further incentive to make you do it by saying, oh, by the way, even if you have got backups of all this data, and you want to try to blow us off uh, for paying to get the key, we'll still just release all the data and hope that it's something embarrassing or proprietary or something that would otherwise harm you. So, you know, for instance, something that I think we definitely need to be doing is these operating systems need to have some sort of a check on wanton encryption of files. And by the way, it doesn't matter if you've already got full disk encryption turned on for yourself. There's nothing saying you can't encrypt something twice. So just because you've logged into your system successfully and your operating system, you know, Mac OS or Windows or whatever has unlocked the files for you to see, uh, doesn't mean that some other malware can't come along and then double encrypt those files in a way that you can't see without getting the key, without paying for it. So I would certainly think that an operating system could be paying attention for some sort of application who is just going through and encrypting every file on the hard drive when it obviously shouldn't be. So Things like that. We need some technical solutions and other things, but it's really good to see everybody kind of finally realizing this is a a serious problem that we all need to work together on and come up with a common solution and framework for, uh, for both preventing it and also just mitigating the effects. So let's hope this is successful. All right, next up, uh, you may have seen this article pop up, uh, and if you've heard of Signal, uh, it's maybe because I've told you about it. Um, It's the gold standard for end-to-end secure messaging. Uh, It's everything that most of the other ones aren't. Uh, Now iMessage is end-to-end encrypted, but as I've said many times, Apple still holds the keys to those things. Uh, So technically, if it wanted to, it could still hand over some of your communications to law enforcement, particularly if you've elected to store your messages in iCloud. Uh, But otherwise it's it's a pretty good system, but Signal um, just goes that much step further and uh, they're not stored anywhere else except on your phone and whoever you sent the message to. It's done by some really, really smart people, uh, including the guy who wrote this next response named uh, Moxie Marlinspike, who has, that is not his real name. Um, But he's a really, really smart guy, and really the brains behind uh, most of the operation, uh, to my knowledge, anyway. So, anyway, there's a company called Celebrite. Um, that makes devices for cracking smartphones. And they usually sell their products to law enforcement, and intelligence agencies, and, and, and actually these devices are now even being used by school systems to break into their students' uh, cell phones and such, which is just horrible. But anyway, there was an article that came out that said that Celebrite had figured out a way to crack signal, to break their encryption, to get the messages when they shouldn't have been able to. Uh, that is not the case. Uh, so I'm going to read this response here from Moxie Marlinspike about this article and what really happened. So again, from Moxie Marlinspike at Signal, he says, the BBC ran a story with the factually untrue headline, quote, Celebrite claimed to have cracked chat apps encryption, unquote. This is false. Not only can Celebrite not break Signal encryption, but Celebrite never even claimed to be able to. Last week, Celebrite posted a pretty embarrassing for them technical article to their blog documenting the quote-unquote advanced techniques they use to parse a signal on an Android device they physically have with the screen unlocked. This is a situation where someone is holding an unlocked phone in their hands and could simply open the app to look at the messages in it. Their post was about doing the same thing programmatically, which is equally simple, but they wrote an entire article on the quote-unquote challenges they overcame and concluded that, quote, it required extensive research on many different fronts to create new capabilities from scratch, unquote. This made us scratch our heads. If this required research, it doesn't inspire much awe for their existing capabilities. It's hard to know how a post like that got out the door or why anyone thought revealing such limited abilities was in their interest. Based on the initial reception, Celebrite must have realized that amateur hour was not a good look, and the post was quickly taken down. They then must have realized that a 404 error, which happens when the page no longer exists, isn't any better, and replaced that again with a vague summary. It's also hard to know how such an embarrassing turn of events became anything other than a disaster for Celebrite, but several news outlets, including the BBC, published articles about Celebrite's quote-unquote success, despite the evidence of clarifying information already available online. What really happened? If you have your device, Celebrite is not your concern. It's important to understand that any story about Celebrite Physical Analyzer, that's all capitals, that's the name of their little hacking device, starts with someone other than you physically holding your device, with the screen unlocked in their hands. Celebrite does not even try to intercept messages, voice video, or live communication, much less, quote-unquote, break the encryption of that communication. They don't do live surveillance of any kind. Celebrite is not magic. Imagine that someone is physically holding your device with the screen unlocked in their hands. If they wanted to create a record of what's on your device right then, they could simply open each app on your device and take screenshots of what's there. This is what Celebrite Physical Analyzer does. It automates the process of creating that record. However, because it's automated, it has to know how each app is structured, so it's actually less reliable than someone were to simply open the apps and manually take screenshots. It is not magic. It is mediocre enterprise software. Celebrite did not, quote-unquote, accidentally reveal their secrets. This article and others were written based on a poor interpretation of a Celebrite blog post about adding signal support to Celebrite Physical Analyzer. Celebrite posted something with a lot of detail, then quickly took it down and replaced it with something that has no detail. This is not because they quote-unquote revealed anything about some super advanced technique they have developed. Remember, this is a situation where someone could just open the app and look at the messages. They took it down for the exact opposite reason. It made them look bad. Articles about this post would have been more appropriately titled, quote, Celebrite accidentally reveals that their technical abilities are as bankrupt as their function in the world, If you are concerned about a situation where someone else might end up physically holding your device with the screen unlocked in their hands, Signal can still help. Features like disappearing messages and view-once media messages allow you to communicate more ephemerally and keep your conversations tidy. It is unfortunate such misleading and inaccurate stories like these spread so quickly, particularly because so many people will see that headline, and so few will see the correction. If you see people confused by this kind of irresponsible reporting, please help by sharing this with them. So there you have it. This unfortunately is often the case with these security stories. The headline is clickbait. They're trying to get you to read the article. Sometimes it's, you know, based on poor reporting or a poor understanding of what's going on, and the hope that, you know, Because it's so sensational, they'll get people to read the article, which will have advertisements on it, and then they will get paid. So I wanted to set the record straight on that. I'm not saying, again, nothing is 100% secure. We may someday find a problem with Signal, and I'm sure Signal will quickly fix it, but this is not that time. All right, one more article, and this is a bit of a long one. It's a blog post by Bruce Schneier, but he does, as always, such a great job summing up what's going on and getting to the real heart of the matter and also making sure that we're not focused on the wrong things. So I am sure you have seen all the articles about the SolarWinds hack. And SolarWinds is a company that makes security software for, it turns out, a lot of really important government organizations and companies. And very recently, it was discovered that what appears to be the Russian government or agencies of the Russian government had found a way to insert a backdoor into the software that these guys make and then turned around and distributed to all their customers. This is called a supply chain attack because it attacks the something in the process of being made that eventually gets to the person you want to hack. So let me just read this article because it's really going to cover just about everything. And I'll talk a little bit about it on the back end, but Bruce does such a great job here. So let me read this article from Bruce Schneider's blog. Recent news articles have all been talking about the massive Russian cyber attack against the United States, but that's wrong on two accounts. It wasn't a cyber attack in international relations terms. It was espionage. And the victim wasn't just the U.S., it was the entire world. But it was massive, and it is dangerous. Espionage is internationally allowed in peacetime. The problem is that both espionage and cyber attacks require the same computer and networking intrusions, and the difference is only a few keystrokes. And since this Russian operation isn't at all targeted, the entire world is at risk, and not just from Russia. Many countries carry out these sorts of operations, none more extensively than the United States. The solution is to prioritize security and defense over espionage and attack. Here's what we know. Orion is a network management product from a company named Solar Winds, with over 300,000 customers worldwide. Sometime before March, hackers working for the Russian SVR previously known as the KGB, hacked into SolarWinds and slipped a backdoor into an Orion software update. We don't know how, but last year the company's update server was protected by the password SolarWinds123, something that speaks to a lack of security culture. Users who downloaded and installed that corrupted update between March and June unwittingly gave SVR hackers access to their networks. This is called a supply chain attack because it targets a supplier to an organization rather than an organization itself and can affect all of a supplier's customers. It's an increasingly common way to attack networks. Other examples of this sort of attack include fake apps in the Google Play Store and hacked replacement screens for your smartphone, which, by the way, is... One more reason that you always take your smartphones, like your iPhone, to Apple or a reputable dealer to do any maintenance on it. Anyway, back to his article. SolarWinds has removed its customer list from its website, but the Internet Archive saved it. All five branches of the U.S. military, the State Department, the White House, the NSA, 425 of the Fortune 500 companies, all five of the top five accounting firms, and hundreds of universities and colleges. In an SEC filing, SolarWinds says that it believes, quote, fewer than 18,000, unquote, of those customers installed this malicious update. Another way of saying that more than 17,000 did. That's a lot of vulnerable networks, and it's inconceivable that the SVR penetrated them all. Instead, it chose carefully from its cornucopia of targets. Microsoft's analysis identified 40 customers who were infiltrated using this vulnerability. The great majority of those were in the U.S., but networks in Canada, Mexico, Belgium, Spain, the U.K., Israel, and the UAE were also targeted. This list includes governments, government contractors, IT companies, think tanks, and NGOs, and it will certainly grow. Once inside a network, SVR hackers followed a standard playbook, establishing persistent access that will remain even if the initial vulnerability is fixed. Move laterally around the network by compromising additional systems and accounts, and then exfiltrate data. Not being a SolarWinds customer is no guarantee of security. This SVR operation used other initial infection vectors and techniques as well. These are sophisticated and patient hackers, and we're only just learning some of the techniques involved here. Recovering from this attack isn't easy. Because any SVR hackers would establish persistent access, the only way to ensure that your network isn't compromised is to burn it to the ground and rebuild it similar to reinstalling your computer's operating system to recover from a bad hack. This is how a lot of sysadmins are going to spend their Christmas holiday, and even then they can't be sure. There are many ways to establish persistent access that survive rebuilding individual computers and networks. We know, for example, of an NSA exploit that remains on a hard drive even after it's reformatted. Code for that exploit was part of the equation group tools that the shadow brokers, again believed to be Russia, stole from the NSA and published in 2016. The SVR probably has the same kind of tools. Even with that caveat, many network administrators won't go through the long, painful, and potentially expensive rebuilding process. They'll just hope for the best. It's hard to overstate how bad this is. We are still learning about U.S. government organizations breached. The State Department, the Treasury Department, Homeland Security, the Los Alamos and Sandia National Laboratories where nuclear weapons are developed, The National Security Administration, the National Institutes of Health, and many more. At this point, there's no indication that any classified networks were penetrated, although that could change easily. It will take years to learn which networks the SVR has penetrated and where it still has access. Much of that will probably be classified, which means that we, the public, will never know. And now that the Orion vulnerability is public, other governments and cybercriminals will use it to penetrate vulnerable networks, I can guarantee you that the NSA is using the SVR's hack to infiltrate other networks. Why would they not? Do any Russian organizations use Orion? Probably. While this is a security failure of enormous proportions, it is not, as Senator Richard Durbin said, quote, virtually a declaration of war by Russia on the United States, unquote. While President-elect Biden said he will make this a top priority, it's unlikely he will do much to retaliate. The reason is that, by international norms, Russia did nothing wrong. This is the normal state of affairs. Countries spy on each other all the time. There are no rules or even norms, and it's basically buyer beware. The U.S. regularly fails to retaliate against espionage operations, such as China's hack of the Office of Personnel Management, or OPM, and previous Russian hacks, because we do it too. Speaking of the OPM hack, the then Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, said, quote, You have to kind of salute the Chinese for what they did. If we had the opportunity to do that, I don't think we would hesitate for one minute, unquote. We don't, and I'm sure NSA employees are grudgingly impressed with the SVR. The U.S. has by far the most extensive and aggressive intelligence operation in the world. The NSA's budget is the largest of any intelligence agency. It aggressively leverages the U.S.'s position controlling most of the Internet backbone and most of the major Internet companies. Edward Snowden disclosed many targets of its efforts around 2014, which then included 193 countries, the World Bank, the IMF, and the International Atomic Energy Agency. We are undoubtedly running an offensive operation on the scale of this SVR operation right now, and it will probably never be made public. In 2016, President Obama boasted that we have, quote, more capacity than anybody, both offensively and defensively, unquote. He may have been too optimistic about our defensive capability. The U.S. prioritizes and spends many times more on offense than on defensive cybersecurity. In recent years, the NSA has adopted a strategy of persistent engagement, sometimes called defending forward. The idea is that instead of passively waiting for the enemy to attack our networks and infrastructure, we go on the offensive and disrupt attacks before they get to us. This strategy was credited for foiling a plot by the Russian Internet Research Agency to to disrupt the 2018 elections. But if persistent engagement is so effective, how could it have missed this massive SVR operation? It seems that pretty much the entire U.S. government was unknowingly sending information back to Moscow if we had been watching everything the Russians were doing, we would have seen some evidence of this. The Russians' success under the watchful eye of the NSA and the U.S. Cyber Command shows that this is a failed approach. And how did the U.S. defensive capability miss this? The only reason we know about this breach is because earlier this month, and this would be December, the security company FireEye discovered that it had been hacked. During its own audit of its network, it discovered the Orion vulnerability and alerted the U.S. government. Why don't organizations like the Department of State, Treasury, and Homeland Security regularly conduct that level of audit of their own systems? The government's intrusion detection system, Einstein 3, failed here because it doesn't detect new sophisticated attacks, a deficiency pointed out in 2018 but never fixed. We shouldn't have to rely on a private security company to alert us of a major nation-state attack. If anything, the U.S.'s prioritization of offense over defense makes us less safe. In the interests of surveillance, the NSA has pushed for an insecure cell phone encryption standard and a backdoor in random number generators, which are important for secure encryption. The DOJ has never relented in its insistence that the world's popular encryption systems be made insecure through backdoors, another hot point where attack and defense are in conflict. In other words, we allow for insecure standards and systems because we can use them to spy on others. We need to adopt a defense-dominant strategy. As computers and the internet become increasingly essential to society, cyberattacks are likely to be the precursor to actual war. We are simply too vulnerable when we prioritize offense, even if we have to give up the advantage of using those insecurities to spy on others. Our vulnerability is magnified as eavesdropping may bleed into a direct attack. The SVR's access allows them not only to eavesdrop, but also to modify data, degrade network performance, and erase entire networks. The first might be normal spying, but the second certainly could be considered an act of war. Russia is almost certainly laying the groundwork for future attack. This preparation would not be unprecedented, there is a lot of attack going on in this world. In 2010, the US and Israel attacked the Iranian nuclear program. In 2012, Iran attacked the Saudi National Oil Company. North Korea attacked Sony in 2014. Russia attacked the Ukrainian power grid in 2015 and 2016. Russia is hacking the U.S. power grid, and the U.S. is hacking Russia's power grid, just in case the capability is someday needed. All of these attacks began as a spying operation. Security vulnerabilities have real-world consequences. We're not going to be able to secure our networks and systems in this no-rules, free-for-all, every-network-for-itself world. The U.S. needs to willingly give up part of its offensive advantage in cyberspace in exchange for a vastly more secure global cyberspace. We need to invest in securing the world's supply chains from this type of attack, and to press for international norms and agreements prioritizing cybersecurity, like the 2018 Paris Call for Trust and Security in the Cyberspace, or the Global Commission on Stability of Cyberspace. Hardening widely used software like Orion, or the Core Internet Protocols, helps everyone. We need to dampen this offensive arms race rather than exacerbate it, and work towards cyber peace. Otherwise, hypocritically criticizing the Russians for doing the same thing we do every day won't help create the safer world in which we all want to live. So that's the end of the article, and I I don't know how I could have said it better. I probably couldn't. So the couple key takeaways, of course, is that this, well, this is huge. This was a massive, massive hack and we will be learning more and more about this for years. And like he said, a lot of that learning will be classified and we probably won't find out about it, uh, at least not for a very long time. But it's also true that we do this exact same stuff all the time. Espionage is just something that we everybody does to the best of their ability, and it's just kind of the norm. This wasn't a cyber attack, but it certainly could have been, or, a sort of, or it could have been a precursor for one. But from what we know so far, this was just information gathering. And at the end of the day, what Bruce is saying, and I agree, is that we've got a lot of really, really smart people and a huge, massive budget for cybersecurity in this country and our intelligence agencies, particularly in the NSA. And these guys find what we call zero-day vulnerabilities uh, all the time. And unfortunately, in a lot of cases, they just sit on them because they want to exploit them. But that also means that their own computers, our U.S. corporate computers, our personal computers, our networks, have those vulnerabilities just sitting there waiting for someone else to hack as well. And all we're really hoping is that we are the only ones that know about them. And that is just not likely to be true. And, and even, even if it starts that way, the NSA itself has been hacked. Our, a, lot of, a lot of our hacking tools have been stolen and almost certainly used against us. The only rational way forward here is to prioritize defense over offense. Whenever our intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies find these vulnerabilities, they need to responsibly disclose them to the affected parties, get them fixed, and help get those fixes disseminated uh, before they can be abused by somebody else. Even if that means that our intelligence agencies cannot then abuse them to gain information from everybody else in the world that we spy on. Okay, let's move on to the tip of the week. Uh, And this will be an easy one. I will read very briefly from an article uh, in Bleeping Computer uh, about this. And that is Adobe Flash is finally dead. (laughs) It should have been killed a long time ago. It's been riddled with security problems for years. Uh, Hackers love to exploit it. Uh, luckily it's been replaced by more modern and more secure technologies and is no longer needed. Uh, nevertheless, it was so, so, so popular and used by so many different websites that Adobe kept it alive for many years longer than it really should have been. Uh, but it's time has finally come. Uh, so let me read this article from bleeping computer, and then I'll tell you where to find information on how to delete this from your computer. Flash Player has reached its end of life on January 1st, 2021, after always being a security risk to those who have used it over the years. Over the years, many zero-day and critical vulnerabilities found to impact Flash Player were used by both cybercriminals and nation-state hacking groups to install malware, remotely execute malicious code, and take over the user's computers. The demise of Adobe's multimedia software platform was first revealed in a coordinated announcement from Apple, Adobe, Facebook, Google, and Mozilla in July of 2017. After December 31st, 2020, Adobe will stop distributing or updating Flash Player, and web browsers will no longer provide support for the Adobe Flash plugin. Adobe Flash Player's end-of-life is good news given that it will drastically reduce the attack surface threat actors can use to hack into web browsers and operating systems. To make sure that all users know of its imminent deprecation, Adobe has also started displaying alerts on Windows computers recommending users to immediately uninstall Flash Player from their systems. And this is a uh, quote from Adobe's uh, press release. It says, quote, Since Adobe will no longer be supporting Flash Player after December 31st, 2020, and Adobe will block Flash content from running in Flash Player beginning January 12th, 2021, Adobe strongly recommends all users immediately uninstall Flash Player To help protect their systems flash player may remain on your system unless you uninstall it uninstalling flash player will help secure your system since adobe does not intend to issue flash player updates or security patches after the end of life date starting with january 1st 2021 adobe will also remove all flash player download pages from its websites users who still want to download and install the software don't do this are urged not to download it from third-party websites since those versions are not authorized by Adobe and installing them could lead to malware infections. No kidding. To completely remove Flash Player from your computer, you have to click uninstall when prompted by Adobe in Flash Player. And then it goes on to say with links uh, for both Windows and Mac. Um, I've got the links in the show notes. You can go to the uh, Adobe website or just search on remove Adobe Flash Player. Make sure you go to the Adobe website for that. Uh, and you can download, basically you need to download an uninstaller. Download, double click it, run through it. Um, You'll probably have to quit all of your browsers before you can run it, Uh, but it will go through and remove Flash Player from all of your browsers uh, and anywhere else on your computer. And I highly, highly recommend that all of you do this if you have not done this already. And so there you have it. That's our big news update and our tip of the week. Thank you, everybody, again, for tuning in to uh, episode 201. If you missed episode 200, definitely go back and check that out. It was really a great episode. Uh, Also, you can learn all the details about the big contest, which is still going on. You can uh, still enter to win uh, in multiple ways to enter. You can find the link in the show notes for this. You can find the link off my website, FirewallsDon'tStopDragons.com or you can just go to bit.ly slash firewalls-200, that's bit.ly slash firewalls-200 with a capital F. You can enter until midnight Eastern time on January 16th, that's a Saturday, and that following Monday morning on this very podcast, I will announce the 10 winners. Every winner is going to get a free digital copy of my book and a free one-year subscription to Malwarebytes antivirus software. There's going to be some really cool hardware uh, that I'm going to give away. Unfortunately, it's only to U.S. residents for those things uh, because international shipping would just get weird, Uh, expensive and difficult with customs and all that crap, unfortunately. Um, So, but there's a $800 Librem 5 smartphone I'm giving away and, and a Winston privacy box with one year's free subscription. Also, these work internationally anywhere in the, in the, on the planet. You can use uh, free subscriptions for one year of Malwarebytes, which I already said everybody will win. All 10 winners will get. Uh, also, a uh, lucky winner will get a free Consumer Reports subscription. Another will get a free FastMail subscription for one year. Uh, three winners will get a one-year subscription to Proton Mail. Another winner will get a free signed copy of my book. Uh, another will get a free signed copy of Cory Doctorow's Attack Service book. Uh, another winner will get four free books from A-Press. And I think that's everything. I think that's all 10 prizes, but lots of prizes. And you can enter multiple different ways. So anyway, check out those links to enter. Get your entries in as soon as possible so you don't forget. Tell your friends and family to enter as well. Lots of different people can win. If you follow me on Facebook, you'll see notices about it there as well. Again, you've got just over a week and a half or so to enter. Um, a week from Saturday, this is all over. So make sure you get your entries in. All right, next up, I promise I'd give you an update on this. And Fortunately, it's not the best news. I've uh, been really begging everybody to give me more reviews on the book and on the podcast, and I have gotten some. And for those of you who have done it, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. It is really, really hard to get reviews. Um, But what I'd hoped to do was I'd set a target for 20 reviews. I think I said 20 total, maybe 10 for the podcast and 10 for the book. Uh, and I have not gotten that amount. So we haven't met our goal. So we're not going to be doing the uh, the private ask me anything session, but also the people that have posted them, haven't sent me emails. Uh, so I know how to contact them. So I couldn't do it if I wanted to. One person did, I think out of all the ones I've seen and that's it. So I will somehow, some way uh, host a private any- ask me anything session at some point in the future. So stay tuned. Uh, in the meantime, what I will do, I still very much appreciate and still much, very much need fresh new reviews for the, both the podcast and the book. And as, as they come in, I will read, select a few of them on the air just to show my appreciation. Uh, and here's a new one here from, uh, in the UK. It's from a gentleman whose name is Lord West or their username is Lord West. Gave me five out of five stars. Thank you very much. Uh, And the title for this review was A Very Comprehensive Book for Online Security and Privacy. And this is what he said in his review. He said, "I, I assume it's a he, I guess I don't know. I received this book as a gift, and I cannot emphasize enough how well the author is covering both privacy and security. He he does so in a very thorough yet user-friendly manner that will appeal equally to savvy and casual technology users. I consider myself a savvy technology user, and I have learned a bundle from this book. You may also want to take a look at the author's podcast, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Of course, you're doing that because you're listening right now. But uh, Lord West, whoever you are, thank you very much for that wonderful review. And thank you to whoever gave you that book as a gift. It does make a great game. All right, folks, that'll do it. Thank you so much again for listening. Uh, next week, we've got the first and part two interview with Helen Horseman who is the COO at Fastmail and one of the people we heard a tip from in our 2 end episode and part of the reason why we've got a free Fastmail uh, subscription to give away as part of the contest. Uh, it was a great interview. You're going to definitely tune in for that next week. And we've got several other really cool interviews uh, in the works. So you know what? If you just subscribe right now to the podcast, you won't miss any of them. And while you're there, drop me a great review. Take care, everybody. Welcome to the new year. 2021 is going to be so, so much better than 2020. I realize that's a low bar, but there really is a lot to look forward to and a lot of reason for hope, not just with the pandemic, but with specifically with security and privacy. I really think we're turning a corner and we've got a lot of really great things to look forward to in 2021 and beyond. So take care, everybody. Get that vaccine as soon as it's available for you. And we will get through this pandemic and get out the other side and go back to normal. So until next week, everybody stay safe and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.